Welcome to the third installment of the Black and Green podcast. It is February 21st. I am your host, for better or for worse, Kevin Tucker. And uh, yeah, so first things first, Gathered Remains, my new book of essays is finally here. And at some point I'll have a soundboard, hopefully, that I can get awesome sound effects going to uh, give a little applause, but for the time being you'll have to just imagine that it's there or try and hear it over yourself clapping as I'm sure you are. Uh, so, uh, yeah, this this book is essays of mine that I've written over the past couple of years. It's a dense book, 344 pages. Uh, and uh, I categorized it the other day as ethno-history, which is uh, anthropology, history, of course, sociology, ecology, all kinds of things uh, that you could label it as. Uh, and... Uh, tend to not focus too much on that stuff so uh, it is available blackandgreenreview.org you can order it off there uh, there is also a uh, pdf version um, for people who primarily hopefully just the people who are international and don't want to pay the exorbitant shipping fees uh, and uh, that's a bit of a problem uh, active distribution in the uk should have copies over there hopefully very near future uh, and always looking for other distributors so we can get physical copies of books into hands instead of just, you know, transferring it onto a screen. Not a fan of ebooks, uh, not a fan of reading things on screens uh, for a lot of reasons. But um, yeah, if you can get the actual book, I think you'll see it's a better experience. Um, we did actually try to go through and do the Kindle thing and all that shit, and it was a fucking mess so um in the meantime the pdf is on blackgreenreview.org you can or you can buy it on there uh and it's on amazon but anyway he's dealt with amazon i can tell you it kind of sucks to deal with uh so i'd rather deal with actual distribution distros and just selling direct uh instead of you know feeding into the behemoth uh so uh, the first podcast, I went over the contents a little bit, so I'm not going to go over all that again, other than to say it should be, hopefully if you're listening to this, it should be of interest, and I hope you'll pick it up. Uh, I will read a bit of the introduction. I do have the entire intro, short like acknowledgments and things like that on the website, but uh, yeah, so this is the introduction uh, to give you a little sense about where it is and where it's coming from. Each of us was born wild, you, me, your friends, and your enemies, every one of us. If you're reading this book, you've been subjected to the process of domestication, the process that turns each of us, born to take part in wild nomadic communities of hunter-gatherers, and breaks us into our roles as consumers, workers, and conscripts, fodder for the world of civilization. Here, we are captives. Captives saturated with a sense of entitlement to the specifics of our cage-free ranges. We yearn for wholeness. We settle for installments. Some by choice, some by force, always by design. We are sold a sense of individuality to prove that we are unique, special. As though being defined by our choices as a consumer gives us freedom. As if allegiance to abstract constructs and ideologies gives us community. Our world, the world catered by programmers and domesticators, politicians, priests, and bosses, is built upon tearing apart our needs as social animals, community, sustenance, grounding, and selling that their supplementary forms back piecemeal. We are meant to buy it and to perpetually come back for more. For the most part, we do. Because within each of us is that want, that sense of loss, our need for a sense of place, in an ecological or psychological sense, pulses beneath the surface. The reality that civilization has created threatens all life on this planet. It has taken life that will not come back. Everyday lives on the break, are on the brink of not coming back. It has created waste that, for all intents and purposes, won't go away. Yet for whatever reason, we are still here. Captives and sedate though we may be, there's a piece of us that knows something is wrong, something huge is missing, something worse is unfolding. Most likely that feeling is why you're holding this book now. Or it could be. I can relate. That feeling is what got me started down this path. That feeling is a burning rage, a refusal to accept a life of passive captivity. It is a surge of life resisting the world-eating growth of an increasingly mechanical apparatus. It reminds us that we are still alive, and it keeps us tied to the worlds that we never forget. 
Sedate, broken, wounded, if you're still breathing, at least a part of your wild self hasn't stopped fighting yet. It is that part that I am speaking to. That is my target audience. The arguments, the research, the endless digging, all of that is to explain that aching burn in our guts to our brains. It's hard to listen to because we've been taught to ignore it. Since birth, we are trained to see the world as a dead place. We deny our instincts, our gut reactions, even most of our senses. We silence ourselves. We become complacent. We become complicit. The more we understand about that process, where it comes from, what its costs are, the better our odds are at breaking it, to undomesticate, to rewild, to tear apart the cracks in the veneer of domestication and to embrace the wild. Suppressed, enslaved, and under assault though we may be, these wild communities are still there, struggling, resisting, existing. Domestication has never been a choice. We were born into it by chance. When we recognize what has been done and what is being done to this world, when we stop seeing ourselves as separate from it, then we will say the same about resistance. That's the beginning of the introduction. So uh, hopefully, if you're listening, that sounds interesting to you and uh, worth checking out. Uh, so this time, there's a couple things I'm going to cover here and uh, hopefully has been some feedback and also feedback for myself uh try and keep the episodes a little bit shorter i know the hour and a half can be a little long especially if you have to pause it and go back or whatever uh you know when you're whatever it is you're doing when you're listening to podcasts and things like that uh can be hard for me to stop sometimes but i'm going to do my best to try to keep it shorter also it doesn't help that uh my internet sucks and this stuff uploads in real time so kind of a pain but uh, that said, I uh, want to talk about, I'm going to bash missionaries a little bit more, and then I want to talk about the problem of human uniqueness, particularly as it relates to tools and technology. So first up, let's talk about missionaries. Uh, as I've mentioned on past podcasts, I'm currently working on a book called Of Gods and Country, uh, The Domestication of Our World, which is about the origin of religion, nationalism, and patriarchy and juxtaposed against the reality of missionaries and conquests, contact, colonization, uh, particularly missionaries as an agent of colonization. Uh, So uh, Yank uh, and I have both realized that neither of us had actually ever read Bartolome de las Casas, A Short Account of the Destruction of the Indies. Obviously, it's a book I've been very familiar with. I've had around, um, read pieces of and everything like that i just hadn't sat down and read the whole thing i've probably read more books about it than it over the past 25 years or so um but it's a it's a quick read it's about 130 pages uh and if you exist in this world i can't recommend it enough because for all the problems that might exist with las casas and um there there are many uh, the account firsthand of colonizing of you know the new world is fucking batshit crazy um, and you, you think about it and you're reading things like this and of course it's a big question that always arises when I think about a book that is is one of my favorites is Eric Wolf's um, Europe and the people without history it's a great piece of ethno history and really trying to understand the world at 1400 when the West dumped its riding corpse into the oceans and spread across the southern hemisphere and to uh what is now or what was then the new world now is the americas uh of course parallels in australia and uh south pacific islands all all these all the places that unfortunately civilization got to uh and it's it's really insane it's uh hard to imagine how these people did the things that they did and were able to do the things they they were doing but there's a constant frontier mentality and a constant frontier situation and it's it's grotesque and if you're familiar with uh conrad kurtz uh talking about hearts of darkness or of course watching apocalypse now you could see why you know the the book that it's based off of hearts of darkness from joseph conrad was written in the late 1800s based off his experiences going into the congo the movie uh, Apocalypse Now was based off of taking essentially the same story and updating it. Uh, America's going into Vietnam and, and kind of along the 
furthest expanses of military expansion into the region, kind of the, well, effectively the frontier, but creating a no man's land where just nothing short of bloodthirsty killers were able to create these kingdoms. And you, you see this throughout history, particularly as the technology increases, you get this role really expanding um, in insane ways. And I'm sure by all means in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, any places where we're sending people or that the, this world and its militaries are sending people, there's going to be these, these situations where there's this kind of uh, chaos unfolding that's just completely marred in religious and nationalistic ideology where everything is justified and anything goes. And there's precedent for all this. Uh, the the only really obvious difference is, is that uh, when you're talking about colonizers in 1400 or something like that, is, you know, the, the communication was significantly less than it is now, obviously. Um, soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan can text, post online, uh, things like that. So that's the element of control. And if you just remove that element, then these, you know, fucking assholes were able to just kind of feed off each other and create even more insane situations. Lascasse's book is necessary in the regard that it just lays it out. I mean, these are brutal accounts of murder uh, that constantly were taking place. It was basically like having that lack of check, having that, that distance, made it possible for every one of these fuckers to just be an enabled serial killer, which is insane, but it's definitely worth reading. But there's kind of a question that I was left with here at the the end for Los Casas, who is very dead at this point, um, who ends the book by saying that uh, he, he presents this because, you know, he never lost faith in any regards in, in God and in, in the sacred authority of, of power in the, in the King and Spanish crown and things like that. Uh, so he, he ends the book by saying, and this is a very powerful book. It's huge impacts obviously. Uh, but that uh, he hoped that these accounts would show the dishonor on the name of God and on that of the King. It's the last words of the book, but you know, obviously that didn't really happen. Uh, so it's a quick quote from the book. The reader may ask himself if this is not cruelty and injustice of a kind so terrible that it bege- that a beggar is the imagination. Whether these poor people would not fare far better if they were entrusted in the hands of hell than that in the hands of the devil in the new world who masquerade as Christians. Uh, I think we know where I stand on that one. Um, of course, if you don't believe in the devil, if you don't believe in Satan then yeah, they were doing just fine. Uh, and far better off, the people of the New World are far better off without God, and without Christianity imposing itself, and certainly without swords. Uh, so another quote here. Um, There's one other factor which merits a mention, and it is that from the very outset, the Spanish have taken no more trouble to preach the Christian faith to these peoples than if they had been dealing with dogs or other animals. Indeed, they have done their level best to prevent missionaries from preaching, presumably because they felt that the spread of the gospel would in some way stand between them and the gold and wealth they craved. Today, the people of the New World are are as ignorant of God as they were a hundred years ago. They have no idea whether he is made of wood or air or of earth. The only place where the missionaries have enjoyed a modicum of success is New Spain, but we are talking here of a very small corner of the New World and... For the most part, the local people have died and still die in the blackest ignorance of the faith and without the benefit of the sacraments. So that touches on my big problem with liberal Christians uh, and so-called or whatever they want to believe themselves to be humanitarian Christians. Uh, The idea that they think they can own it. And you see this without all civilization, without all, especially with liberals and trying to think that well, we meant well, and that's good enough. It's not. And also, you know, this this comes back to the, the central kind of question. Uh, is religion being misapplied or the teachings of Jesus being misapplied by somebody carrying a sword instead of a Bible? 
insofar as you can distinguish them. And there's just no reason for me or anybody, especially the indigenous people who are being killed and subjugated uh, to all of this, that Las Casas had more of a moral standing to claim what was Christianity, what was a Christian mission than the missionaries that were just butchering, absolutely butchering, raving, killing, enslaving uh, native women, children, men, everybody. I mean, what they did was by all means unthinkable, uh, but, you know, why, why should Las Casas say that, you know, this isn't what God wanted? Of course, again, bigger questions there as far as, uh, you know, thinking these are people, we're, we're just killing them, we're not saving them, which is, again, another side of colonization, another huge issue, and these people were no less going to be subjected to ethnocide had he gotten his relatively what he would consider a peaceful missionary purpose. And he never questioned uh, the validity of the crown. Um, he never questioned the, the right of the kings to subjugate these people, and he just questioned the harshness of it. Uh, and I mean, you know, huge, huge issues there for a lot of reasons, but why, why would you think that what he was saying and what his intents were and many missionaries that would follow him that come along the same categories, which just we'll get to in a second here is, is a prevalent and continual issue. Uh, it baffles me and it baffles me that religion get such a free pass in the society and people even even in the anarchist world are so willing to give the benefit of the doubt to christians and think that they mean well uh which i just don't believe and i'm not saying that i haven't met christians and there's there's even been christian erica Purvis and uh somebody like andy lewis i get along with i like uh but i don't understand it i don't understand where the free pass for religion comes in and where people want to take this energy to try and take a, a fucking book that was written 2000 years ago, however long we going to go back to the old Testament and say, it's like, well, you know, at least we got this part, right. When the entire history of that book is just fanfare by patriarchs and just a shitty collection of fan fiction, uh, for a God that ultimately decimated in the entire world. Uh, so coming back on that, uh, there's a great book, Norman Lewis's The Missionaries, God Against the Indians. So uh, Las Casas' book was written in, I believe, 1542. could be wrong about that. He was involved in some of the first trips from Spain to the New World. He was, you know, it sounds like he had actually made his wealth uh, in the first place as one of the colonizers before he kind of seeing the errors of his way, becoming a priest and um, coming back as a, as a missionary or as a agent of God, whatever you want to call it. And for Norman Lewis, his experiences with missionaries are in, you know, the forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties. Uh, this book was written or I'm sorry, was put out in 1988 uh, a lot of the stuff that's in it goes back to like the 50s and 60s. It was a central part of Survival International uh, coming about. And so it's, you know, there's a lot of things I could say about it as a book or anything like that. But uh, in terms of the content, you see that liberal side that, that Las Casas would want to say that he was a part of that would be somehow better Uh but, you know, hundreds, hundreds of years later, these things didn't really change. The degree and the severity changed a bit, but not by much. Most of the missionaries were involved with uh, agents of oil companies, with miners uh, and loggers and just expansionists. And they're, they're talking about flybys with planes and dropping explosives. They would drop down gifts to try and get uncontacted tribes to get to get accustomed to them and get used to their presence. And then they drop down gifts all tied to bombs and they just kill them. I mean, the stuff did not change. The spread of disease did not change. It just got faster with more technology and then a much nicer veneer put on it because people could lie. So 
the particular case I want to read about here is the Panera of Venezuela. Uh, and so the uh, New Tribes mission were there. And this there's an account here talking about uh, an anthropologist talking about what they were doing and their strategy. This is a quote from her. Uh, Indians like to do everything together. They share everything, particularly their food. They're close to each other. The missionaries understood this, so they worked out the best way to punish those who didn't want to be converted was by isolation. As soon as they had a strong following in the village, they would order the converts to have nothing more to do with those who held out. No one, not even their own parents, was allowed to talk to them, and they were obliged to eat apart from the rest. It was the worst punishment an Indian could imagine, and it often worked. So there's a lot of force being used in these cases. Uh, in this particular case, the the reasons behind it weren't weren't too shocking. It is usually the case. Uh, new tribes, missions, or missionaries are given permission or given access or land holdings by governments or by be on on behalf of multinational corporations, and uh, they're they're entirely sent in there to pacify a region so they can move in. In this case, uh, the strategic minerals that were in the land of Panera Dare live on were cobalt and uranium. Uh, and Westinghouse General Dynamics were involved in helping to secure and advance the missionaries as an agent. Uh, and they just, you know, continually would work to undermine everything about these societies by force and make it look like it was a choice or make it look like they were coming to. Uh, some kind of conversion out of out of choice, when in reality it was just a last last resort. Uh, another kind of quote here from the book: When you forbid the Indian to dance, drink his yaraki, and eat the ashes of his dead one, you destroy his culture. One doesn't spread God's message by terror. The one difference that changed between Las Casas time and here, of course, and obviously not in full. But get back to the quote. Uh, the new tribe's mission relies on force, and if the native allows himself to be converted, he does not. He does so out of conviction, not out of not out of conviction, but fear. Sorry, I kind of butchered that a little. Uh, and then Maria Eugenia Villon, uh, this quote is saying, "The creation of fear was the most powerful weapon in the missionary armory," which is definitely true. So. The way a lot of these new tribes missions and uh, Summer Institute of Linguistics Wycliffe Bible translators worked was by trying to translate the Bible and then hoping that the Bible would, you know, in their words, would claim or would, would change the society. Uh, reality of it is, is that when you set up the situation where missionaries are there and they're trying to create uh, the, the language or to turn a language or an oral language into a written language, it requires a lot of changing in terms of how that culture sees the world and how they see each other. Cause the concepts within the Bible just don't make any sense. So they have to try and translate things so that uh, cultures that don't exist or don't have history as we would say, it, or as a, a literate culture would have it uh, where they don't have calendars and they don't have things like that, uh, how they would see the world and trying to insert some level of oral tradition into the the bible and the way it works so you get a little glimpse of how that works and looking at this translation for the panera bible given by new tribes mission uh, and this is a little quote from it the panera killed jesus christ because they were wicked let's kill jesus christ said the panera the panera sees jesus christ the panera killed in this way they laid a cross on the ground they fastened his hands and his feet against the wooden beams with nails they raised him straight up nailed the man died like that, nailed. Thus, the Panera killed Jesus Christ. And you get this kind of repetition. This is a common, a common thing in, in oral narration, uh, in civilized societies and, and societies without civilization or societies against civilization. But this is, this is the way they manipulated things, by trying to take these abstract concepts that had no meaning within grounded peoples living, in this case, in Venezuela, uh, living in the Amazon, for what you know, these, these nomadic warriors of the desert would experience 2000 years ago and, uh, thousands of miles away. So you get the repetition, you get this, this sense that, uh, the Panera were personally responsible and that's why they should feel guilt when are all just horribly foreign concepts. But 
you try and impose this guilt while at the same time actively taking efforts to tear apart their societies, to destroy their cultures and make them feel guilty for something that they had previously or very recently had zero relation to or very no understanding. And these people are, and the missionaries are really, you know, kind of a backbiting bunch. They want to put all this effort on it and everything, but it's, it really comes down to, you know, how many souls can we save? It's not this pious kind of shit that they want to pretend it is. And uh, to give a little example of that, another quote in the book, uh, in Kyrka, six evangelical temples fought each other over the conquest and division of souls. So bitter had the struggle become while we were there that one sect broadcasted amplified, broadcast deafening, deafeningly amplified pop music, including old Beatles tapes, for no other purpose than to drown the calls to salvation of its nearest rival. And you get this throughout the history of, of missionaries and conquest and, and past, present, future, I'm sure. Uh, where it really is just kind of a competition to say it's like this is this is our capital, this is our value, this is our asset. How many souls can we save, or how many souls can we claim to save? And uh, the funny thing about that is that uh, if you want to talk about saving souls, all you have to care about is the souls. If the people die in the process, uh, as is often the case, many times the case, anytime you're taking nomadic or semi-nomadic people and you're bringing them to a settlement where there's uh, all the uh, presence of civilization, all the technology, all the tools, all the access to it, and of course all the diseases and all the the food that just is garbage, uh, and of course all the sugar, tobacco, alcohol, drugs, prostitution. Uh, that's that's what's going to end up happening. And of course, what ends up happening is when people get to these settlements, they're closer to roads, they have access to these small airstrips. Um, you know, there's a lot of alcoholism. There's a lot of uh, addiction. There's a lineage of people having had uh, been sold into slavery and working for plantations. Often the goal of these, these missions is this kind of a uh, velvet glove version of colonialism where they're going to forcibly break people, forcibly relocate them and then use missionary foods as subsidiaries to get them dependent on it and get them pulled away by force from um, hunter gatherer, horticultural or even agrarian methods of subsistence and make them become dependent and then they take it away and then they're just saying that your value comes as labor of course a lot of this stuff really just comes down to a company town situation uh and then also just straight up slavery which is a big part of this history uh and to give a little to give a little more about where they're coming from and where that missionary shit comes from there's a brown gold which was a magazine, I believe, of New Tribes Missions. It might have been Summer Institute of Linguistics. And here's a quote from that <clears throat> on the subject of unreached Indians. It is fair to say that they sit in darkness. While we cook on fancy stoves, they cook over open fires. While we ride in cars, they have never owned a pair of shoes. While we sleep on nice mattresses, many of them sleep on split bamboo floors. While we struggle to keep our computers going, they are still rubbing sticks together to make a fire. While we perform heart surgeries, some of them have never seen a Band-Aid. I'd say that God is right when he says that they sit in darkness. So I'm not a fan of missionaries. Not a fan of the Bible. Not a fan of any of that. It should be fairly obvious. And uh, if it's not, there you have it. There's my controversial statement. Fuck God. Fuck the state. Fuck religion. Fuck missionaries. And uh, if the sitting in darkness means not having to sit here in computers and trying to talk to people over the world to find some semblance of community while other people sleep on the ground and rub sticks together, make a fire and have an active community and have societies where they're not having to perform heart surgeries and deal with heart diseases. One of the top killers solely because we eat shit food and we live shitty sedentary lives. You know, was it worth it? No. Uh, and the active forcing of civilization upon these peoples is uh, horrific and ongoing and it is something that needs a lot more attention drawn to it uh, so you know there's that it, it's something that needs a lot more attention i think and uh hoping to give it some and i'll have more of that as we as this book comes along and of course it's going to be a recurring theme on this podcast 
So switch gears a little bit here, but uh, really kind of tying all this stuff back together is one of my favorite topics, which is the myth of human uniqueness. Uh, and the ideas of religion are obviously not untied to this. This is really what a lot of this comes down to is we have to create reasons to justify what it is we're doing to the world and, and things that we, we couldn't do uh, to the land base or to the earth, the wildness, nature, whatever you want to refer to it as without having this kind of cognitive dissonance about our relationship to it and our relationship to the world, our relationship to each other and domestication underlies all that. And, and religion is nothing if not the, one of the greatest forms of domestication. And I, I it's important to, to understand domestication in this kind of a sense and to understand the problems of civilization and the ways that we deal with it and the, the kind of ideological constructs we have to con continually uh, create and uh, perpetuate just so we can realize that domestication is a process. Domestication is something ongoing and it's, it's a way that we're kind of told to see the world and it is sold back to us. But these are, these are constructs, they're ideas or things that we can show demonstrably are not true if only we are giving ourselves the kind of context and the ability to think outside of, you know, the boxes that we've been given or the boxes we've been sold and the ways that we arbitrarily divide the world into, into species or to all these different kind of categories and give ourselves the place that we can continually see ourselves as better. So there's an ongoing discussion and that's been going on in black and green review. Uh, and really throughout the entirety of anarcho-primitivism about the nature of symbolic thought and symbolic culture. And there's a lot to it. Uh, number two of Black and Green Review, I think, had a lot to offer, hopefully, in that in that regard, in that discussion of, of some differing views. It's one thing where uh, John Zerzan and myself see things a little bit differently in his line of questioning going back to the 70s about the nature of language, which has a, a long kind of philosophical and historical tradition of... I think ultimately kind of comes back to that, that question of human uniqueness and the idea that that language are, as Chomsky would say, um, grammar, def language defined by grammar makes it something unique that humans have and therefore in some way superior. And all this stuff kind of goes back to the ideas about the human brain being uh, an anomaly within the natural world uh, and something capable of a higher plane of thinking, higher plane of existence and a lot of really dated notions as far as uh, correlating brain size in humans and changes, changes in human activity, ideas about uh, certain brain size making it possible for us to organize in a certain way that made collective hunting easier and made it possible for us to, even in some cases, say that we, we switched to eating large game, which is really at this point such a, a moot point. And such a, a non-reality, uh, especially when you look back at, at the fact that, you know, we've been hunters for a very long time, or at the very least, we've been scavengers for a very long time. Uh, and, and, you know, it's kind of an argument I got in one, one point with uh, Kirkpatrick Sale when he wrote um, one of his more recent books. That, uh, ah, what's it called? Something about the Ice Age. I'm blanking. Oh, well, deal with it. Um, and he had, he had made, tried to make this argument, which is not an uncommon argument, that the changes about 75,000 years ago or so with, with brain size, uh, supposed to correlation with brain size and group hunting, changed our relationship with the world because it made it possible for us to hunt big game. And if anybody's hunted or you know butchered roadkill or something like that, you can kind of get the sense as well that the if we're scavengers, and of course if there's ridiculous amount of evidence that we've been hunting for a much longer time than 75,000 years and possibly upwards of millions of years. Uh, at the very least been hunting smaller game and trapping smaller game for millions of years uh, and scavenging that entire time. The idea that there's some kind of psychological change that occurs between scavenging a large animal and hunting a large animal or scavenging or hunting a small animal and then hunting a large animal is really just an extrapolation of kind of ideas that we've built up on and, and nothing else. Uh, the, the archeology, span the history behind all that stuff has been thoroughly debunked. Um, so it kind of comes back to it, but there's more to be said about trying 
instead of trying to find these points that made us supposedly so different and treating that as, as its own trajectory to, to find the points where we have been the same. And for me, part of that goes back to language and it goes back to communication. Uh, and a lot of the things that we have, ideas we have about grammar, the ideas we have about the importance of language and, and object impermanence and things like that, I mean, they're very demonstrably untrue to say that there's something that's uniquely human uh, and tools being another another point. But uh, the tools and technology are the point I want to get to here in a second. But in, as a, a kind of roundabout way, there's this section uh, I want to read just because it's, I think, very powerful and very important on the matter of, you know, what what aren't we seeing? What have we missed? Because we've been so obsessed with this idea of human uniqueness um, and we're, we're just not understanding other animals on their own terms. And we're spending too much time trying to say it's like, well, why we're so important. So this is from <clears throat> Carl Safina's Beyond Words. It's an excellent book. Highly recommend it. I'm very much hoping that uh, we can get Carl interviewed in Black and Green Review. This book's from 2015. And then in um, 2016 or early 2017, I'm thinking it's 2016, it's View from the Lazy Point came out. And that book is also very excellent. Uh, but this section is, he's, he, with Beyond Words, he's talking about uh, the this, this subtitle of the book is What Animals Think and Feel. And really a great book in terms of uh, under, undermining that argument about human uniqueness. And it has a lot of like really great stuff that's far beyond anecdotal about how different animals communicate. And so this section is talking about, this is the end of the section talking about elephants. And the chapter is called Holding Back, Letting Go. I'm just going to read it because I think this part is really, really telling and showing that communication, language, things like that. We just have to stop thinking about them in, our, in terms of what we've upheld for humans. This, Vicky says enthusiastically, is what I mean by a cohesive family. Having finished eating, the elephants gather closely, adults facing out, children in the middle. Jean is very slow, backing into Jolene, touching her. Quote, see them all standing together now, leaning against each other, touching with tails, trunks. This is perfect. Everyone's feeling really safe. They'll probably have a snooze now, end quote. Babies sprawl around abundantly, dozing peacefully within their tribe's safekeeping. The adults just stand quietly, at least it seems. All that ear flapping, says Vicky. That means they're talking. We can't hear them. Lyle Watson describes himself fun in a, find, describes finding himself in an extraordinarily poignant encounter with the cliffs of South Africa's seacoast, while he was watching a whale. And this is all a pretty lengthy quote here. The sensation I was feeling on the clifftop was a sort of reverberation in the air itself. The whale had submerged and I was feeling something. The strange rhythm seemed now to be coming from behind me, from the land, so I turned to look across the gorge, where my heart stopped. Standing there in the shade of the tree was an elephant, staring out to sea. A female with a left tusk broken off near the base. I knew who she was, who she had to be. I recognized her from a color photograph put out by the Department of Water Affairs and Forestry under the title Last Remaining Kenyan Elephant. This is where the matriarch this was the matriarch herself. She was here because she no longer had anyone to talk to in the forest. She was standing here on the edge of the ocean because it was the near next nearest and most powerful source of infrasound. The under rumble of the surf had would have been her would have been well within her range, a soothing balm for an animal used to being surrounded by low and comforting frequencies by the live sounds of a herd, and now this was her next best thing. My heart went out to her. The whole idea of this grandmother of many being alone for the first time in her life was tragic, conjuring up the visions of countless other old and lonely souls. But just as I was about to be consumed by helpless sorrow, something even more extraordinary took place. The throbbing was back in the air. I could feel it. And I began to understand why. The blue whale was on the surface again, pointed inshore, resting, her blowhole clearly visible. The matriarch was here for the whale. The largest animal in the ocean and the largest living land animal were no more than 100 yards apart and I was convinced that they were communicating. In infrasound, in concert, sharing big brains and long lives, understanding the pain of high investment in the few precious offspring, aware of the importance and the pleasure of complex sociality. These rare and lovely great ladies were commiserating over the back fence of this rocky Cape shore, woman to woman, matriarch to matriarch, almost the last of their kind. I turned, blinking away the tears, and left them to it. This was no place for a mere man. Of course... 
I think that's powerful on a, a number of levels. Uh, and I it just, you know, it took me back when I read it as much as this book does, but these are, these are things that we're discovering in the, in the aftermath and in the wake of what civilization has taught us, what religion has allowed us to believe and what domestication constantly reinforces about the idea that we can do the things we're doing to the world. We can have discussions about the consequences of it. We could have discussions about the extents to which other animals communicate or which they have language or not. As long as we're having this backdrop of uh, civilized existence where we are just obliterating all of these animals and obliterating the world and obliterating everything that's, that goes on in life. And it's, it's insane and it just has to fucking stop. It's going to eventually stop on its own and probably in, in the relatively near future. But the, the sooner we start to feel these things, the sooner we start to undermine everything about our ideas of being unique and our ideas of being uh, this special godsend and that, and the idea of thinking that going along with us and just having these conversations and having these ideas is enough it doesn't do it. It's not enough. We have to do something about this. The sooner, the more that this comes down, the more agency we have in, in taking this on, the better off we'll all be. So I'll end up talking a little bit more about that in terms of rewilding and in terms of understanding and undermining that in our own lives and our own experiences. But I want to get back to the discussion of tools and technology. So there's plenty of discussion that shows that there's nothing about tool use that's innately human uh it's something that plenty of animals do and something that many animals use uh much like language much like communication and it just we give ourselves credit because we want to think of ourselves as ingenious we want to give ourselves credit as a species for the things that these our societies have created in reality you know when we're using technology i'm talking to a microphone that's connected to uh, an audio input that goes to a computer and it's going to the internet, uh, we can feel like, oh, hey, we, we've got this thing. We've got this level of superiority. We've created this. As a society, we're doing all these things. There's not a single person in this world that can put all these things together. Nobody's going to create a cell phone. Nobody's going to create a uh, cell phone tower on their own. Nobody's going to create all these different interfaces. And people can put things together, but nobody's going into the mines to get all the parts that go into it. Nobody's getting all the rare earth minerals on their own. It's just, it's kind of an insane situation where we can give ourselves the space to take credit as a culture for all these things without taking the blame for what it takes to get it to us. Uh, and that's where I, I want to go back to in terms of talking about tools and technology and talking about what that means for our own identity, our own sense of individuality and our sense of pride in being this supposedly unique animal uh, because we have access to these things, because we carry a cell phone in our pocket, which is a, a crazy technology. I mean, it's totally insane. It shouldn't have ever existed. Uh, the, the consequences of it are things that none of us will really ever see, and it's definitely not in full. And if you spent your life trying to understand what went into a cell phone alone or what goes into a computer alone or what, what it takes for the Internet to even be reaching you and these words to be getting to you uh you're still we're not going to see all of it we're not, we're just not going to and it, it requires this kind of distancing so uh to start off with definitions uh i think in terms of technology versus tool there's a lot of confusion a lot of people do things differently a lot of people say things differently and then of course you know talking about what i would call a tool could refer to any number of things covered by uh uh, a group of experimental archaeologists slash rewilding people uh, who run a journal called uh, or Bolton for the Society of uh, Primitive Technology or Bolton of Primitive Technology. So the the language there is obviously not universal, and um, I think it's important to be a bit more nuanced about it. Uh, but you know, I, I there's limitations to all of it, so I'm just going to do my best. Uh, and trying to articulate what it is I'm getting at. And there's a long tradition on all sides in terms of that. But as far as a tool goes, Carl Safina has a definition that I think is very simple and very useful, and it helps explain or gives a context for it not being something totally unique to humans. A tool is a thing that isn't a part of your body that you use to accomplish a goal. Pretty straightforward. 
uh, and it's it's easier to kind of define that against what what technology is. And so I often go to Lewis Mumford, uh, particularly Myth of the Machine, Tactics and Human Development, the first part of the two books there. This book's from 1966, and uh, he's got a pretty extensive quote. The whole idea is building out techniques and what what he would call the mega machine. So delineating between tools and technology. And just to start out here, he, he goes a long way in terms of showing the over importance we tend to play and they in in feeling this sense of empowerment because of technology. So I'll read a little bit of a quote here from it. Uh, now we cannot understand the role that technics has played in human development without a deeper insight into the historic nature of man. Yet that insight has been blurred during the last century because it has been conditioned by a social environment in which a mass of new mechanical inventions has suddenly prolif- proliferated, sweeping away ancient processes and institutions and altering the traditional conception of both human limitations and technical possibilities. Our predecessors mistakenly coupled their particular mode of mechanical progress with an unjustifiable sense of increasing moral superiority. But our own contemporaries, who have reason to reject this smug Victorian belief in the inevitable improvement of all human institutions through the command of the machine, nevertheless concentrate with manic fervor upon the continued expansion of science and technology, as if they alone magically would provide the only means of human salvation. Since our present overcommitment to technics is in part due to a radical misinterpretation of the whole course of human development, the first step towards recovering our balance is to bring under review the main stages of man's emergence from its primal beginnings onward. Just because man's need for tools is so obvious, we must guard ourselves against overstressing the role of stone tools hundreds of thousands of years before they became functionally differentiated and efficient. In treating toolmaking as essential to early man's survival, Biologists and anthropologists for long underplayed and or neglected a mass of activities in which many other species were for long more knowledgeable than man. Despite the contrary evidence put forward by R.U. Stacey, Daryl Ford, and Andre Leroy Guron, there is a tendency to identify tools and machines with technology as to substitute the parts for the whole. Even in describing only the material components of technics, this practice overlooks the equally vital role of containers, first hearths, pits, traps, cordage, later baskets, bins, byers, houses, to say nothing of the still later collective containers like reservoirs, canals, and cities. The static components play an important part in every technology, not least in our own day, with its high-tension transformers and its giant chemical retorts, its its atomic reactors. In any adequate definition of technics, it should be plain that the many insects, birds, and mammals had made far more radical innovations in the fabrication of containers with their intricate nests and bowers, their geometric beehives, the urbanoid anthills and terminarites, uh, the beaver lodges, and the man's ancestors had achieved in the making of tools until the emergence of Homo sapiens. In short, if technical proficiency alone were sufficient to identify and foster intelligence, Man was for a long laggard compared with many other species. The consequence of this perception should be plain, namely that there was nothing uniquely human in toolmaking until it was modified by linguistic symbols, aesthetic designs, and socially transmitted knowledge. Now here's a little bit of a point of departure between Mumford and I, and I, I you know, again, this book was written in 1968. A lot of things changed, or in 1966, and a lot of things changed, especially in 1968 uh, when you put out or the anthropological world put out man, the hunter and started to revise a lot of ideas we had about what being a hunter gather meant, what being a nomad meant and the consequences of it. So Mumford becomes concerned primarily with uh, techniques and technology as an idea. And this is a social change. And while he gets a lot of really important points in terms of the, the nature of surplus, the nature of production, the nature of sedentary societies, I still think there's a bit that if he had been alive longer, been writing, um, which he did live longer, but I mean, like had written this book in particular, uh, after a lot of those kind of conversations have been coming out, he probably wouldn't have been as sour on the uh, materialist interpretations of where technology comes from, uh, which effectively means that technology is a reflection of how we change the society. Um, so if you remove the idea of uh, hunter-gatherers going from immediate return, which means that you just go out and you get what you need as you need it, versus 
uh, hunter collectors or horticulturalists as it's a delayed return society, which means that you're essentially investing in the future. You're producing a surplus. You're producing something um, that's going to eventually pay off essentially, you know, what, what progress would become in, in kind of comedically abstract ways. Um, I think it would be different. So it's kind of a side point, but I I think it's nonetheless a very important one. And regardless of that, his, his idea of technology uh, begins with the organization of labor. Uh, and there's a, he's got, a, he's got this kind of quote a number of times, a number of ways, but I, I love it. Uh, the very outset of the organization of archetypical machine composed of human parts. Uh, so in that regard, he's not really far off from any kind of materialist analysis and talking about the origins of surplus, the origins of production, which are things that are very historically unique and very much different. But the idea basically being is that technology or technological society are separated from tools at the point in which they become for surplus production or for for something for uh, later use than what we're currently using. Uh, and it is social in nature. Technology isn't just about creating a stone tool or being able to have the knowledge of how to make a bow and arrow or something like that. Uh, it just comes down to playing a part within um, the chain of command or the, the, uh, the, the layers of a society uh, where you're just adding to the division of labor and adding to uh, the creation of society as though it's something separate from yourself as you know we've all become horribly aware and familiar uh, so in that regard the distinction between a tool and technology becomes particularly important because a, a technology becomes the basis of society in and of itself kind of the defining factor of it the way that we identify ourselves and the way we we can take a certain pride in having some part in this much larger thing without ever actually contributing to anything without ever actually having to confront the fact that we have very little, if any knowledge or ability to subsist on our own uh, or to subsist as a culture within this apparatus. Uh, so the, the tool in the sense of what a hunter gatherer might use or, or even a horticulturalist might use is really the encapsulation of, of just, knowledge and ability and a tool is something that could be created and handed off or just used and and ditched and it just doesn't require an entire industry there's no mining for iron or if you're making uh stone tools and and there's really a lot about tools and, and tool use amongst hunter-gatherer societies and horticultural societies that had a vast amount of variation in fact no no technology or no tool in the history of humanity was as fast or as universally applied as the cell phone was in the past 15 to 20 years, where at this point, I think it's, it's half the adult population in the entire world has a cell phone. Uh, even the, even the way that fire was taken on by, by hunter gatherers, um, going back hundreds of thousands of years and millions of years, it wasn't even as universal as, as the cell phone has been, and it certainly wasn't as quick and as widespread. And the ways that we, we typify you know, what a, a hunter-gatherer might use as a tool in terms of bows and arrows, plenty of hunter-gatherers throughout the world that don't use them, uh, and they don't necessarily make sense. But the idea of a tool isn't the, the defining trait of a hunter-gatherer. It's not the identifying trait of an indigenous person. And within the rewilding movement, within the primitive skills of primitive um, I don't know, technology and skilling world, there's this kind of tendency to want to identify with those tools as, as a rejection in certain ways of, of this technology and, and a realization that we have no connection with the machines that our, our lives are encompassing, uh, that every, every aspect of our lives are involving and from phones to cars to, you know, even a hammer, that's mass produced or an ax that's mass produced and steel tools and things like that. Uh, but there's still this kind of idea that we can, we can identify on, on this material level and really kind of just build up this knowledge and replace our toolkits with 
tools that we've made and, and get it and really kind of move on. But even beyond that, you know, kind of going beyond just the survivalist ideas and the, the ideas of being very technologically dependent, I think it's important to understand not just the, the difference between a tool, something that you can pick up and use, and I can go down to the to the creek bed down here and I can grab some flint, I can grab some river stones, I can craft a simple cutting tool and use that for foraging for the day, dole it out, use it to, to skin and butcher an animal. Uh, you can even use the Riverstone rock to, to hunt and distinguish that from technology, which is a, uh, an entire social thing. It's something that requires an entire change of production and really becomes a central part of the identity of a given culture. And it, it has to, it's by necessity that it must, um, because that's, you know, how we stop looking around. It's how we stop identifying with the world around us is we see ourselves as separate from it. We see ourselves as unique. We can embody the traits of all these individual technologies and all these these mass-produced tools, and kind of get this sense of completeness that keeps us from really understanding how how much we're moved ourselves and how much we've lost in the process. So going back to Safina, uh, you know, I think he he does a good job pointing that out as well. And I'll go back to quoting him here from Beyond Words again. But as individuals, most of us, given bolts of cloth wrapped in a bow, couldn't even sew a decent shirt. Yet we enjoy congratulating ourselves for collective human achievements in which we individually deserve no credit, achievements most of us don't comprehend. Humanity's collective horrors we generally don't like to take credit, claim credit for. In the 20th century, civilized people killed over 100 million other civilized people, and this century hasn't gotten off to a great start. We'd rather focus on our ability to make planes and computers, a soothing delusion to those of us who don't actually know how to make planes and computers, which may be just as well. Dogs don't know that people make cars. About what it actually takes to put together a car, the mining, the metallurgy, the chemistry, the design and assembly, the factory origin and distribution, dogs know slightly less than most of us who just hop in and go for the ride. So end of that quote. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that that's an important point for for perspective and that's something that we need to be keeping in mind especially as we're talking about rewilding and resisting domestication uh so that's also a subject uh i have an essay in mind in the new issue of black marine review called fair revisions so i'm just going to close out reading a little bit of that it's from the section from observation to integration the world is a fairly forgiving place. Unlike the technosphere we have isolated ourselves in, there aren't nearly as many circumstances presented in the wild that are likely to prove themselves fatal. And people do die in the wild from falling out of trees, yet, much like the incredibly low rates of being preyed upon by other predators, this is an exceptionally low probability. But the chances of, a dying, in, of dying in civilization from car accidents, drug overdose, fatal medical errors, preventable diet-related illness, suicide, homicide, or any of the illnesses that come along with industrial pollution and proximity with domesticated animals are perpetually creeping up. What we give up in this is in exchange for the illusion of control. We accept the possibility of being killed, wounded, or debilitated by cars, yet we believe we choose our role in the unspoken social contract just by being in or around them. As G.A. Bradshaw reminds us, we are capable of understanding carnivores or other potential predators if we just give them the benefit of the doubt and learn to understand them as a species and as individuals. That's largely not true for technology. Things go wrong constantly, and our degree of control is largely negligible. Technology gives us the weaponry to create unforeseen and often unpredicted consequences for our actions. It feeds our disconnect that washes our hands of responsibility for what we do in our own complicity within civilization. In the wild, removed of such distractions, that physical and psychological barrier is suffocated in what can often feel like an air of vulnerability. When we outfit ourselves with gadgetry and artifacts of mass production, we're giving ourselves a survivalist lifeline to, to, to civilization. If you can move past them, then you can laugh at some of the growing pains along the way. But rest assured, we've had so many layers of domesticated vision put upon us that as this journey isn't likely to end in our own lifetimes. As a nomadic hunter-gatherers would remind us, if we simply paid attention, laughing at yourself is a pretty vital skill, potentially even more important than the ability to recreate an impressive collection of primitive tools. Replacing our obsession of consumable material goods with wild-crafted ones might improve your skills without ever checking your survivalist habits at the door. The path of wildness requires shutting up and allowing yourself to be shut up. Sometimes you just have to stop and listen, pay attention to the alarms, the calls, the signs, and the behaviors. That's especially true when you are the source of them. 
the connections that become apparent beyond thought. The process of peeling back begins, one stupid preconceived notion at a time, unraveling our lifelines to the iron lung. Observation is a vital step, but observation alone doesn't take us away from our status and our stasis as spectators of life rather than actors within it. Rewilding is about moving beyond observation into integration. The backpacker and birdwatcher are intent to leaving only footprints. Rewilding is about leading your leaving yourself behind to learn and understand the larger wild context so that we may become a part of it. And it goes on from there. But the the central idea here all revolves around the idea that, you know, the, the way that we see the world, uh, the way that our perception of the world is shaped is, is at this point very intentional, which is something that is historically unique. Uh, never in human history really has there been such an ability to craft narratives and to shift those narratives in such a way and to reinforce them in the way that technology currently is uh, to to keep us from paying attention to what's actually going on and to pay attention to what's happening in the world and to buy into religion and kind of personify it and to buy into the religion of technology and of the lives that we're able to present within social media uh, and social networks and things like that. So it's becoming more important the more technology makes it possible for us to, to really isolate ourselves and to identify with it that we look beyond that and we understand you know that this this technology is is a tool of domesticators it's a tool of programmers used to distract and used to to keep us from seeing these things and to see ourselves as unique and important and special in every way that's just going to keep us searching for ways to prove that to ourselves into the days that we ultimately die because of that search and that's taking more and more kind of insane forms and you see the school shootings you see the rise of drug epidemics and you look at a global scale uh you know you're looking at you know bangladeshi women being crushed by buildings for fast fashion uh and just the insanity in the, in the world of you know a child born in syria at any point over the last uh, six, seven years since the, the Civil War has been going on there and, and resulting in itself from climate change and resulting itself from food shortages and things like that. I mean, there's just another scale, another level that we have to look at the world at. and it's, it, it goes beyond everything that we know as nomadic hunter-gatherers, the way that we're shaped and the way that we see things and the way that we're meant to interact within communities rather than on this technologically amplified global scale that they're just basically counterintuitive to how we've always existed but they become necessary because this is the world that exists and whether you want to get lost in some philosophical kind of bend about what is real or what isn't i mean it doesn't change anything about the fact that we are killing off all the elephants we are killing off the whales in mass we are killing mass portions of the world we're feeding into the genocidal regimes of of at the hands of missionaries, miners, loggers, and whatever else, just so we can get these rare earth minerals and oil to keep us going on, to keep us looking for some way to define ourselves and make ourselves feel special. And that's pretty fucked up. Uh, and it's not something we should be okay with. It's not something we should think is just all right. And that's just going to kind of deal with itself. It has to be confronted. The nature of domestication needs to be confronted. All the myths that support that, idea that support all this the religion the nationalism uh the philosophies the ideologies and just even getting online and and playing along with it all it it needs to be radically confronted and so that's where we're at here uh so with that going to close out here again are the uh the newest books that we got out uh gathered remains is out now black and green review number five just came out uh, Freddie Perlman's Anything Can Happen is a new one, too. Uh, if you're interested, of course, the, the whole point of this stuff is to drive towards the books and have this actual conversation with thought instead of just people posting and reposting something and liking a headline or whatever the fuck it is that happens on social media and social networks. Uh, if you like what we do, you support it. Pick up the books, read them, discuss them, talk about them in real life. Let's have conversations in real life. If you have uh, InfoShop or... Uh, go to university. Uh, you can help get speakers out. Myself and other editors of Black and Green Review are available 
for workshops, talks, anything like that, you can reach out and also let me know if you've got any comments, things you want me to discuss. Black and green press at gmail.com. That's black and green press at gmail.com. If you want to send a letter, still have a P.O. box, it's black and green. Uh, P.O. box 402 Salem, Missouri 65560. Again, that's P.O. box 402 Salem, Missouri 65560. Projects do take a lot of money. We can always use help, donations, support. Uh, you can donate via PayPal or Patreon. If you go to blackandgreenreview.org and the Black and Green podcast tab, uh, there's some more information and links there. Uh, and also, I'm working on a couple things for future episodes uh, in terms of discussions, interviews, and things like that. If somebody has uh, an extra microphone, like an SM58 or something like that, they want to donate, it would be greatly appreciated, and it would make all that a lot easier. So I uh, appreciate you listening. And, uh, yeah, talk to you next time.